we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. So, um, how many of you uh, really showed your anxious face when Pastor Jimmy was like, show me your anxious face? Anyone else? What is, what is y'all's anxious face? Y'all have an anxious face? I see some, not many out there. It's because none of y'all are ever anxious about anything, right? No, that's not true. I know that's not true. Um, well, we have some very important church family business to do right up front. I want to introduce to you a newborn uh, to us, Santiago Jaramillo, right there, born July 1st. And if you know this family, if you haven't already reached out to them, text, phone call, will you let them know that we rejoice with them in this new life uh, as, uh, as a reminder of God's beauty and goodness and truth? Um, so do that, and we re- do indeed rejoice with them. Uh, my name is Danny. I'm one of the preaching pastors here at First Baptist Church and have the privilege of leading this gathering of believers on Sunday morning and throughout the week. And if you're visiting with us today, thank you so much for uh, trusting us and walking through these unknown doors into unknown spaces among unknown people. Maybe you know one or two of our folks here. We hope that you feel very welcomed in this place, but we would like you to let us know that you are here, and if you could do that by going to fbcsa.org slash connect, just a very simple way. You can do it on your device right now if you haven't already. Just a simple way to say, hey, I was here, um, and we look forward to making further contact um, with you uh, in the future. So last week, I gave away a book um, by Rosario Butterfield uh, entitled The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Um, And so I'm going to give away this book right now. It's called The Simplest Way to Change the World. Uh, Biblical Hospitality is a Way of Life. Now, um, somewhere in this section right here, I I have put this card. So if you see something like this in front of you, in the pocket in front of you, or even in the row in front of you, um, anyone see that? Anyone? Anyone? Rudy, do you see it? There you go, Rudy. I was like, I think it's right in front of Rudy. You come on down, Rudy. Get this book. Hey, let me tell you, Rudy uh, already is leading teams uh, to engage college students with the gospel. Um, so, Rudy, I'm going to challenge you. After you read this book, you need to give it to someone else. Can you do that? All right. All right, brother. That is good. So, um, this whole month, we have been talking about, we're just three weeks in, but we have been talking about that God has called us to be a family of storytellers. We have been commissioned to sing Jesus' victory song, right? Much like the song of Deborah that proclaimed what God did through these people that he had commissioned to deliver uh, the Israelites out from under oppression. And so we are called to do the same thing, to declare to a broken world that uh, Jesus, the, the Father, sent the Son 
so that we might be made whole, be forgiven of sin and restored back to God. That's our song. And all along the way, I've been saying, that's our song. We ought to be a family of storytellers right here in the heart of San Antonio and to the ends of the earth. And so last week and this week and even next week, we have been in Gideon's story, which is found in Judges chapter 6. So um, we're going to pick up in verse 25. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read verses 25 and 26. Let's read this together. Uh, That night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. You may be seated. Father, we ask that you uh, bless the reading of your word. Lord, may we receive it and be challenged by it and respond to your voice through your word. So we need your Holy Spirit to help us along the way. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So we know the story thus far, uh, that God sent a messenger to encounter Gideon while he was threshing wheat and hiding, uh, and God had commissioned him to be a deliverer, the next judge for Israel to bring them out from under oppression of the Midianites, where this this semi-nomadic horde, so to speak, that were kind of overrunning the land and taking crops uh, like a swarm of locusts. And we, could, we remember that, that Gideon had his own objections or complaints. Remember he said, goodness, Lord, where, where have you been? I mean, you say you're with us, but where is the God of old and the God of miracles and God of wonders? Uh, you have abandoned us. And so the other complaint was, remember objection, I can't do this, I, I am weak, uh, I, I am unable to fulfill the task you've given me. And then the last one that Gideon had was, okay, if you've called me to do this, can you please affirm that it's really you and that you're actually going to go with us, right? And so now we're at this point where Gideon has received the assurances that it indeed is God who's commissioned him and God will go with him, that he will be with him uh, to rescue the people out from under the oppression of the Midianites. And so before the victory of deliverance happens, God commissions him or commands him to do a particular task that is very close to home. And these texts tell us exactly what goes down. He says, that night, that same night, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Essentially, um, God is saying, I I want you to take the biggest, strongest, the prize bull of your father's herd, because that's what's going to be required to pull down the altar that has been built in the center of your town. And he says, then I want you to go and pull down that altar. I want you to cut down the Asherah pole. Now, the Asherah pole was, uh, Asherah was the, the, the complementary female goddess to Baal, the female goddess of fertility, and they kind of fit together. And so he says, I want you to tear down the altar, cut down that wooden pole, wooden pole. 
And then I want you to take those same stones from that altar to Baal and, and create a brand new altar on that same spot. And then I want you to take the wood from that Asherah pole and I want you to start a fire from that Asherah pole and then I want you to sacrifice that bull and burn up that bull as an offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. That was the command. That was the command. So what does Gideon do? What does Gideon do? Before we get to what Gideon does, I I want to suggest to you that this is a moment where God has an opportunity to reintroduce himself to both Gideon and to the people of this town. It's also a very clear, close-up, and personal snapshot of what idolatry looked like among the people of Israel. Uh, Up to this point, we've just had general statements that they had given themselves to other gods, given themselves to other gods, but now we are in the heart of a town. And we have an opportunity to see what idolatry looks close up and how the people responded to Gideon's actions and obedience to the Lord. What was idolatry really like? And so what does Gideon do? Um, The good news is um, Gideon immediately goes and obeys the Lord. So verse 27, it says, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord commanded. So we can see those assurances, that affirmation that this is indeed the Lord who's commissioned him and the Lord will be with him has really paid off. Isn't that great? I mean, Gideon believed God, he heard God's next command and he went about doing it right away. The word of God says that he did it under the cover of night because he was fearful of the townspeople and their reaction. Now, we can see that at first glance and say, gosh, man, he shouldn't have been afraid, right? Well, I, I really think, this is my opinion, I really think that um, what the, the storyteller is telling us is that he was afraid for all the best practical purposes. I mean, what would have happened if Gideon got his ten servants during the daytime and went down to the altar in the middle of town and began to pull it down? Do you think he would have had, been able to do it? Probably not. The people probably would have got up in arms in that moment, probably would have killed him on the spot. Who knows? So I think... His immediacy and obedience under the cover of night allowed for him practically to be able to fulfill God's command, to actually destroy and resurrect a brand new altar to the God of his ancestors. But that's what happens. And so the next morning, in verse 28, it says, early the next morning as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down, that the Asher pole beside it had been cut down, and in their place a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. And so you can imagine the stir that happened, the kind of anger Uh, that kind of erupted once they realized that the altar to their god, Baal, had been destroyed along with the Asherah pole. I mean, it was likely a significant commotion, right? And one of the things that we kind of observe in this kind of close-up view of idolatry in the people of Israel is that this wasn't something happening on the periphery. It wasn't like... um, that you know, a few people were worshiping Baal here and there, but what becomes clear is that they're giving themselves to idolatry and building altars to other gods in their own towns was heart and center to who they were. 
So much so that when they recognized that that altar had been destroyed, they were livid. And they said, we better find out who did this. And of course, they put together this this team of investigators. And I guarantee you, it didn't take long for them to figure out, because remember, he recruited 10 of his father's servants to find out that it was Gideon, the son of Joash, who did this. And what was their reaction? In the midst of their anger and hatred, what did they demand? The Bible tells us that they demanded Gideon's life. Verse 30, it says, bring out your son. The men of the town demanded of Joash, he must die for for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. In their devotion to Baal, they were ready to put Gideon to death. This wasn't some peripheral spiritual experience that happened among a few. It was very heart and center to these townspeople, but all was a part of their life. And so they were ready to put him to death. It, it makes us wonder if the God of their ancestors even registered as they saw this new altar. Did they even stop to think Maybe this is an altar to the God of our ancestors. Did they even stop to wonder um, and discern, Gideon, why did you do this? Who is this new God? Or who is this God that you've built this altar to? No, the worship of Baal and their enslavement to this idolatry had such a grip on them. All they knew was hatred and anger and the readiness to put Gideon to death. That's the extent to which they had given themselves to idolatry. They'd given their very lives. It's clear that they had no remnant of allegiance to the God of their ancestors. And although, like Gideon, they possibly had known some of these smattering of stories that had been handed down to them, they, he wasn't the first thought that came to their mind. Likely these stories that they had held on to were just scripts that had been given. Their hearts had been given to something entirely different. That's just how far they had gone. So there's a few things going on here. One I've already alluded to. I really think for Gideon and the townspeople, this is a reintroduction, an opportunity to be reacquainted with the God of their ancestors. I would like to think that among that townspeople, uh, especially after dad Joash said, why don't you let Baal defend himself? If he's really a God, let him defend himself. This is kind of a mini Mount Carmel moment too, right? You remember Isaiah, I mean Elijah and Mount Carmel? And he says, let, why don't you call on your God, I'll call on my God. Of course, we know uh, that the God of Israel showed himself. And in the same way, Joash I don't know all of his intentions. I think his greatest intention is to preserve the life of his son, but whether he realized what he was doing or not, he was creating this Mount Carmel moments. And if Baal is really all he says he is, why don't you let him take care of himself? Defend himself. He shouldn't need you to do his job. And that's actually true. But I think along that process, I would love to think that that somewhere along the way, one or two people began to recall smatterings of the law of Moses and that law that says, you shall have no other, say it with me, God before me. I think God is saying, can I reintroduce myself to you? 
that I, I am your God. I'm the, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and I am a jealous God. You should have no other God before me. That's the kind of God I am. And those are my expectations of my people. The other thing that I think is going on here, if you go back to verse 13, remember verse 13 captures uh, Gideon's original complaint? Well, if you're with us, where in the world have you been? Have you seen what it's like out there? I mean, we've heard stories of, of wonders and miracles and rescuing your people, but where have you, you've abandoned us. I think this is a moment for God. Not only is he saying, listen, I want you to remember who I am. Let me reintroduce myself to you. But let's be clear. I didn't abandon you. You abandoned me. You walked away from me. The last thing that I think is going on here is uh, God is getting to the heart of the problem that we've seen over and over again. For Gideon and for the townspeople who have been crying out because of their pain and suffering under the Midianites have always thought that their problems are out there. That's the problem. They're the problem. If, if they would just go or if they would change, we would be fine. And I think God once again is saying, can I remind you the core and root of the problem that you're facing is right smack dab in the middle of your town. It's in your own homes. That's your problem. It's very relevant for us, isn't it? There is an incongruency with the way the people of Israel were living in a very polytheistic culture. It was certainly acceptable for them to kind of have maybe God of their ancestors here and then several other gods with you know Baal and Asherah being kind of the foremost. It was acceptable to have a lot of different gods and goddesses to fit into their needs and fears and expectations. And, um, but God exposes here that that just doesn't fit. You can't have me alongside these other idols, these other gods that aren't gods at all. It's incongruent. You can't make sense of that. You can't, you can't proclaim to be my people and then enslave yourself to these gods. And so God is really exposing this incongruency of life that I think is profoundly relevant for us, isn't it? Uh, this whole week, I've been asking that kind of question of myself. Is there, are there things in my own life, my own home, that simply don't fit with who I am in Jesus? That they themselves have manifested in me building altars to them and bowing down to them rather than giving my life fully and wholly to Jesus and his way of life. It's really led me and convicted me about things that maybe I've given myself over to, uh, not intentionally, just these altars just resurrect themselves over time. It's given me pause to kind of think through incongruency in my own life, my own church family that really gets in the way of us and our commissioning to be a family of storytellers. I really think that's one of the reasons, among the ones we've listed, is that 
the reasons that God told Gideon, I, I need you to get to work in your own town. I need you to get to the root of the problem before I can bring you out from uh, oppression from the enemy and the Midianites. I, uh, before I can lead you into victory, I need you to get really honest about who you are and we need to get on the same page. I think God says the same thing to us as being a church who are called to be a family of storytellers. If, if we want to be this beacon of light, if we want to be salt in this broken and hurting world that is desperate to hear Jesus, then, then we as a church family, we as individuals and, and, and uh, immediate families need to get real and honest about the things we've given ourselves over to other than listening and following Jesus faithfully. That's kind of where I've been and musing this week about my own life. I think Jesus had a lot to say about this issue. Um, maybe one of the clearest things that he said about this just issue in particular, he said a lot, right? So if you want to be my disciple, you've got to put everything behind you. you you've got to die every day. I mean, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty singular, right? Um, Matthew 6, 24. I want you to listen to these verses. Uh, Matthew 6, 24, uh, Jesus said this, no one can serve two masters. No one, no one. Jesus saying no one has the ability to receive commands and listen to two masters and obey both faithfully. No one can do it. He says, and then he explains, he says, for you will hate one and love the other. Who does that sound like? The townspeople. Right, I mean, the moment they realized what had gone down in their town, just anger arose. They loved the one and hated the other. He says, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Um, I believe Jesus had a lot to say about incongruency in the life of the believer. Um, we're all familiar with that story, right, of the rich young ruler. Y'all remember the story? This young affluent man, for all sense and purposes, his life, he had it together. I mean, his mom would have said, look at my son. I mean, he knows the law. He hasn't memorized. He, he's followed the law all of his life. He has a great job. He is financially secure. I mean, any, any woman would want him to be her husband. I mean, he is like the cream of the crop. I am so proud of this son. And so this young man goes to Jesus and says, um, good teacher. On the side, Jesus says, who are you calling good? Don't you know only God is good? This should help us frame the conversation here. Jesus is questioning his um, questioning this young man and him calling Jesus good. At the same time, I think Jesus is saying, listen, you are about to hear the good God speak to you. It's kind of like a foreshadowing of the outcome of this story. Will this young man listen and obey the voice of God? So the young man says, um, uh, can you, uh, listen, I I've grown up in the church how can I obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, have you followed the commands? He says, all my life, since I was a boy, I followed the commands. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing you lack. I need you to sell all this money you've accumulated, and I need you to sell it and give it to the poor. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And so this man has 
received words from Jesus. And he's beginning to evaluate his life. No one can serve two masters. Will I follow Jesus or will I love my money? And this young man, the Bible says that he dropped his head and he walked away from Jesus because in that moment, you cannot serve both. And he was devoted to his financial security rather than listening and obeying Jesus, the good son of God. Jesus had a lot to say about incongruity. And he says, you can't serve both. It's either me or it's whatever else you have given your life to. Who will you listen to? Paul had things to say about incongruency. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Um, Paul was addressing an issue uh, in the Corinthian church where you had Christians who were really celebrating their liberty in Jesus, as they should. I can eat whatever I want to eat in Christ, right? Paul would press that a little bit. He would say, be cautious on how you use your Christian liberty now. Because if it is at the expense of your neighbor's conscience then in your freedom and liberty to eat that thing or drink that thing or do that thing that you have the freedom to do now, if you do it in offense of your brother's conscience, you no longer glorify God because you're no longer loving your neighbor. Paul is saying, when we devote ourselves more to Christian liberty than loving our neighbor then we do not glorify God in what we eat or drink. The other way to say it is like this. Paul would say, even in the smallest, insignificant things in life that you have the freedom to do or not do, I want you to do them as unto the Lord, to love him and love your neighbor so that he might be glorified in everything that you do. I want you to be devoted to God so fully that you're willing to give up the things that you are called to freely do or you can freely do. Can't serve two masters. You can't serve Christian liberty and the call to love your neighbor as yourself. He said it like this in Galatians 2.20. He said, my old self has been crucified with Christ, my way of doing things. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul saying, I am, I am trusting and putting all of myself in Christ. It is through him that I am made righteous and it is by him that I live. So much so, I'm no longer living by my own broken desires, but I am living for him in a singular way, undivided. There will be no other altar in my life other than the altar to Jesus, is what Paul is saying. In this case, he's saying, I will not make an altar to my good works. That was the issue that the church in Galatia was wrestling with. 
Gosh, what does this mean for us? If we are going to live and tell the story of Jesus, if we are going to be a family of storytellers, we cannot proclaim Jesus and then go home and enslave ourselves to our own gods, building our own altars. Do y'all hear what I'm saying? Does that make sense? We can't live by this script that we have on Sunday mornings. Or are we, we can't even walk through a script, the Romans rolled, our three circles, as if that's what God expects of us in this evangelism, our bearing witness. We can't bear witness and read and recite the script and then give ourselves to other gods. That's what God is saying to Gideon. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul is saying. That's what I'm saying. We can't do that. We can't be that kind of person or family or church. We need to be far more than well-equipped, well-scripted Christians who more often than not are far too comfortable with the status quo. God reintroduced himself to Gideon. I think Gideon was very, I mean, it was in his own home. It was in his own town, this Baal worship. I, I think until the messenger of God showed up on the scene, I think Gideon was very comfortable with the status quo. It's just the way things are. And God reintroduced himself. He says, no, you've, you've got to tear that down. You've got to tear down that altar. Uh, and if we're going to be on the same page, you need to know who I am. I am a, a jealous God. And, and, and furthermore, there is no God like me. There is no God who created the heavens and the earth. You have no rescuer but me. Will you realign your life and worship me alone? And he's saying the same thing to us as a church. As a church. Our world is desperate for people who are following Jesus in all of their life and how they love their neighbor and how they do their work and how they associate with their colleagues and how they love the poor and how they're, they're invested in caring for their neighbor, even willing to sacrifice their own Christian liberties. We, our world is desperate to, to, uh, for a world to see a wide open church and how we love God and serve others. That's what our world is desperate to see. Not just to see it, but hear it. Hear it from us. This is why we follow Jesus. This is who Jesus is. But that can only happen if, if we faithfully, by God's power and spirit, tear down the other altars that we erect in our own life. Will we do that? We're going to move into a time of response. And I want to give you the opportunity to get really open and honest with the Lord. You know, David prayed that prayer. Will you, will you show all the hurtful ways in me, the ways that I don't even see? Some of you may need to ask the Lord, Lord, show me the altars to other gods that I've erected in my own life, my own family. Maybe the, one of the ways that we know that we have other altars to other gods in our own family is... Uh, 
when God begins to press on those things, we get ticked off. You know what I'm saying? Oh, not that. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't touch my money. Don't touch my schedule. Don't touch all my kids' activities. Don't touch this. Don't touch this. Don't touch this. Don't touch my time. That's my issue. I, I like my own time. But what if God says, Danny, I want you to give your time to someone else? We tend to, we're able to see those idols for what they are or maybe distinguish them from some other things in our life when we are ready to defend them and justify them. That might be a good indicator. That might be an altar to another God. Would you be willing to explore that, repent of those things, and ask the Lord, help us to live a life open for all to see as we follow your son and no other master. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story of Gideon that we all need to hear. Lord, he is on the hero's journey, and this is just another step of understanding who you are and what you've called him to do. But Lord, in that process, we've, we've seen ourselves, that Lord, we've also been called to a great task to make disciples of all peoples and all nations. And so along the way in this journey of our own, Lord, as sons and daughters, would you show us the idols that we have made to other gods? And by the power of your spirit, may we destroy them with truth, your righteousness. Lord, help us to live out the story of your son. Help us to listen to his voice and to be fully committed and devoted to him alone. In him, in that kind of life, that is our best life. It's not an easy life, but it is the best life where we are no longer enslaved to other things, but we are caught up in the one whom we have peace and hope and purpose. Lead us right now in this very moment, Lord. Bring to light things that we need to lay down, that we need to tear down. We trust you to do it. And it's the name of your precious son who spilled his blood on our behalf and rose victorious over sin and death so that we could be free. His name we pray and all God's people say, amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.